Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. This season's broad theme is navigating uncharted territory. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited, and I know I say excited every week, but I do mean it because we absolutely love doing this podcast. <laughs> we are really excited today to be joined by Roxy Lagan, who is founder of Kids of Colour, part of the Northern Police Monitoring Steering Group. Roxy's work we've been following for a couple of years now, and it's just so inspiring. I love how focused it is on young people and their experiences, basically. Of I know it's not necessarily contextualised as this in, of, in kids of colour, but their sort of experiences and navigations of white supremacy in the in UK um, and in Manchester um, more specifically. Um, I just think what you're doing is incredible and it's a, you're a beacon and inspiration to so many of us that are trying to organise right now. So welcome to the show, Roxy. Hi, that was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you see, you see what Chantal does it. I just want to say this to listeners, right? So I'll just explain this to Roxy. I need to tell you all, right, why it's always me that introduces the show, and it isn't because I'm a narcissist and want to do it. Tiso, tell them. Right, listen. Right, Chantal, is, she's better at it than me. Right, she's a, no, she's a, right. you listen, get one second, one, one second, one second, one second, one I don't like doing it because I, I don't like the confines of the, like, you need to say this. It freaks me out. Chantal's got that flow. She's evolved. And it, look at Roxy. Look, she even said it was nice. If you see Roxy's yeah, face yeah, now, right. happy, happy, happy. Anyway, anyway, to be conti- debate to be continued. Roxy, thank you so much for joining us. So some of our listeners might not know and if you don't know, get to know, might not know what you do at Kids of Colour and how you came about. So it'd be really great if you could just start off by telling us about the origins of Kids of Colour and what you guys stand for. Yeah, so Kids of Colour, I set it up in February 2018. So it's been about, yeah, two and a half years now. So still feels fairly new. Initially, I set it up for a space to be created for young people of colour to explore their experiences of race and identity and culture because it really kind of felt like there wasn't really a space for them to talk about that explicitly as well as their experiences of racism in Manchester and in the UK more widely as well. It was there for them to talk about everyday experiences of racism as well as the racism they experience in institutions but I think quite quickly it shifted to a, a space that really needed to do more challenging and advocacy and campaigning as well and that's something that maybe I didn't anticipate initially when it kind of started as a storytelling project almost it moved really quickly so you started this being a kind of like like a collective a safe space for young people and then because I see you as a campaigner yeah holding power to account yeah so it started as me just like quite fed up of all the narratives about young people of colour in society being really negative, obviously, because of racism, really negative, you know, every young person's a gang member, a terrorist, a drug dealer, whatever. Um, That was always the news and the rhetoric that you were seeing. And it started with me just being like, I want to film some videos of young people and I want to ask you what it's like growing up. And I'm not a video maker. 
and I just was like, I'm just going to take a camera and put it on YouTube and see what happens. Because I'd seen this free working with young people for six years in Manchester, there wasn't necessarily a space to have that discussion, like I said, quite explicitly. Um, so it started with that, just started with videos. And then we had the first event because I thought there needs to be a bit more space to talk about this. And I thought, no one's going to come, but, you know, it's it's worth it. And then it just picked up massively. And then, obviously, through these discussions, so much racism kind of came to the forefront of all the accounts and it just changed shape. When I first started to notice some of the work that you were doing and how poignant it was, was when I saw the way you were documenting young people's experiences of interpersonal racism within schools. So by that, by interpersonal racism, I mean sort of racist name calling, how young people of colour were experiencing that within the school setting and how teachers were or were not responding to that. As someone that's been doing research and having adults retrospectively looking back at their time at school and the racism they experienced, and obviously being a black mixed race woman that went to school in a predominantly white area, like these conversations about that racism we negotiate in school like it almost it seems so bizarre that we don't actually talk about it that much and how pernicious it is I I guess it's a product of a a kind of post-racial society isn't it that racism doesn't exist so if a child is seen as being racist to a kid it's sort of something that's up for debate and it like what I feel like your work really does is really bring to the forefront is how pernicious and how actually widespread this racism can be in school settings for young people of colour. With my understanding, what I wish Roxy's work existed when I was going to school because by yeah. the time I get to secondary school, it's normalised, right? So we're having normalised conversations with people, racialised conversations. So at times it's classed as friendly banter and we're engaging it back and forth, back and forth because we don't really understand the consequences but on some level, we do, because sometimes those words can lead to aggressive actions, right? So it lead to fights or whatever it will be. But it's normalised. My particular generation, we've learned to navigate that. I accepted it. It's not, it's normal. So that's why there's no conversation once I leave school, because I, we understand how it is. And it's convention. So we bear those scars and I and I bear those scars as I get older and I seek to pass them on. And it's that intergeneration, intergenerational conversation that we're having here. Yeah, I think I think that lack of space to talk about it has been so clear almost especially in the early stages every time I finished a video and lots of the young people would say oh you know what I didn't even really think it was racism oh Roxy that is the line and they would say that yeah and you and you'd you'd really you'd really feel for them and but also like you're both saying you'd really recognize that in your own experiences as well and that kind of you know so many of the young people still talk about going along with it because also at that age and you know I've said this in workshops to teachers like at that age you don't want to disrupt things you don't want to disrupt your friendship groups you don't want to be seen as the person who's kind of putting your neck out and and this annoying phrase now like oh you're being a social justice warrior um to teenagers who are speaking out about racism yeah yeah so I've had young people who said like you know if I try and speak about stuff on Instagram or whatever they call me a social justice warrior um, almost as an insult and you know you go along with it you laugh at it because it's it's easier and also like lots of young people I don't completely have the the language yet to articulate exactly what's happening to them. So you go along with it, you normalise it. And I think experiences are still very much the same as when we were in school. You have to remember the experience going from primary school to secondary school is mad. You've just entered a room of all these social social rules that you don't really understand. So I'm coming up against classic 
racism, then I'm coming against colorism, then I'm coming against all these things at once, right? And so you're trying to work things out. You're trying to work things out and where you stand. And like you said, the thing you don't want to do in school is stand out. You need to conform. So you play by the rules. Because standing out, one of the things that kind of struck me was homophobia. Like in my school, rampant. You're going to play along. You're going to, you're going to join in almost sometimes. Yeah. Because that's, that's a safe play. And, to, and in these polarised times, I can imagine being a kid, people are entrenched in positions that they don't really understand themselves. So this idea of being a social justice warrior as an insult is very polarising for them. You know, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's so polarising. I think what we have now, though, is, is lots of young people who are still willing to push against that and challenge that, even though that's being chucked at them. And I think I'm, like, always immensely impressed um, by all the young people I meet who are, one, talking about race and racism in a way that I just could never at that age. Um, and two, really, really challenging. And I think particularly, you know, following the kind of amplification of the recent Black Lives Matter mobilisation, seeing all the young people who are like ready to take this to their schools and to be like, why are you not supporting us? Why are you racist? Why are you doing all these things? Like in mass, it's just so impressive and they're willing to to risk to risk a lot more than than young people we were yeah yeah but also you know they're they're putting their education on the line there because they're whilst they're doing that and whilst they're putting themselves out there in that way all those racial stereotypes are still going to be faced back at them as they're kind of disruptive and aggressive and trying to disturb things and all of these kind of other stereotypes that exist anyway come up against them when they're trying to challenge the status quo even more so um but they they're still doing it and it's so impressive and it's been really interesting to see over the last few months how willing um young people are to put their neck on the line for it and it's yeah it's impressive we can learn a lot from young people i think when i was growing up there wasn't that space online wasn't a thing so we end up mm-hmm. i end up seeking out radicalized groups radicalized black groups right so i started reading literature so it's it's the support what was always missing was that support where it's, is it okay to speak about these things in my experience i end up meeting these black radicalized groups who gave me a sense of notion what it's meant to be black and to understand the world or understand what was happening to me in a particular framework and it's that framework they put me in that was that's questionable but it's the idea that i had a space to go to to talk about these things when i look back in hindsight how you talking about about no 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 it's, 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 it's even worse Worst man, this, this guy, I can't remember the guy's name. The guy was called Dr. Malachi Z. York. He's, in, he's actually in federal prison now in America because he's, he's, he's a mentalist. The idea that black people like to explain black history and understand where you are and stuff, it was mad. What I was going to say is leading to the point how this is kind of replicated in the classroom. Like, we had a teacher, a uh, biology teacher, and um, he refused to call this black guy by his name, by his real name, his African name. So he called him King Kid. And I'm like, we used to be pissing up. Like, as a bunch of kids, like 13 year olds, that was funny. But looking back, you're thinking, how did that boy feel? Every lesson, every Wednesday. I remember a teacher, a white woman, doing like, obviously this is radio, but doing like a sort of click, like two clicks at me whenever I like spoke or like tried to articulate my views. And like, oh my God, the amount of times teachers would call me a diva as well. Like, I guess it's not, that's not kind of, that's not kind of like a, it's a tired, trope stereotype but like all that stuff is just so prevalent in the classroom and like the thing that that hasn't gone away makes me so sad yeah Um, it hasn't gone away and it just sticks through to adulthood I remember maybe it was last year we did a and we were doing a workshop 
about racism in education to two adults um, at the University of Manchester and a woman came and maybe she was I would say mid-20s but it was sharing her experience of racism in education that actually led to her kind of leaving the education system because she was just so done with it and it was a teacher who created a slavery board game made it himself this is this isn't a nice story but you know the the goal of the game was to get to the end with the most slaves left on your ship. What? Um, what? Was it meant to be free? There were different <laughs> different things along the way where they would you would lose slaves. Sorry, just to say, Tim's laughing because he's a bit hysterical. Am I actually saying these words and the reality? I, yeah, I mean, it was just disgusting, and you could you could tell when she shared that. Or, I mean, obviously, as as is the case for so much racism that we experience in our childhoods, and then come to kind kind of process and get over in adulthood. Um, you know, she was still really struggling with that, understandably, and the whole room was just like, what on earth? But teachers like that still exist. Okay, I don't necessarily know that they're going home in their own time to to create board games, but some of the stuff that I you know still hear said and to parents as well the the kind of the things that are aimed at particularly black mothers um it's just really shocking I think I really like the connection that you made there Roxy between childhood and adulthood and how like as adults we've kind of needed to retrospectively make sense of what happened at school to us but actually like what from what you've been saying and the work the work you do with um your young people is that actually they're making those connections a lot earlier on as to what's happening and then after the renewed Black Lives Matter um, we've had over the last few months, like you can like, you can really see how that is becoming more, they're making those connections a, a lot earlier, basically, mm-hmm. and standing up for themselves. And one of the things that I've seen with young people as well, and I'm talk- when I'm talking about young people in my life, I'm talking about between like, the age of like 10 and 18, is that like they're kind of standing up to the adults around them as well around this stuff like if you go back to the 1970s like the 1970s my mum's generation would stand up to her my grandparents generation they were saying like you are too busy doing what you're told yeah, yeah, yeah. no to i'm not up. being positive i'm just talking yeah. about i'm just contextualizing this moment i'm mm. particularly thinking about the, and the reason why i'm contextualizing this moment is because you've got people using language kids uh-huh. using language like social justice warrior that you'll uh-huh. hear on good in britain like mm. and how like like, I can't believe that that kind of discourse has seeped in. Like, I don't, I don't disagree to you. Like, we're seeing yeah, yeah. That, that, that standing up to the to people that are older than you has gone on for yeah. a long time. But there is something very interesting about like how polarized generations are, how how polarized young people are from older generations. Like, thinking about things like Brexit, thinking about like Black Lives Matter, and how yeah, like it's it's there's young people give me are giving me life right now. Like, it's so mm-hmm. inspiring. It is continually inspiring, and I think, but also, like, I try and, where possible with the projects, try and get the balance of that this is, they are inspiring, I want them to lead the way on lots of the work, but I also want to make sure that there are adults leading the projects who take that weight off, and I think, you know, a lot of work is youth-led, and that's really important, but also it's important to make sure that as adults, yeah, I guess we're trying to bridge that, that kind of, up a bit and we're we're taking on that burden for young people who are still trying to process that all through education and it's still exhausted so many of the young people i know are just exhausted from going through it all and they lots there are there are the ones at the forefront of the project who are willing to you know speak in the news and do 
the kind of more puppet bits. And then there are those behind the scenes who are just having to always face and challenge annoying institutional issues within their their schools and are going through longer battles or just really kind of facing challenges with the everyday racism. And that's where I think it's really important as adults, we start to take some of that burden off and start to fight on their behalf and not just leave it up to them as, as inspiring leaders, despite the fact that they, they are and they young people always will be trying to get that, that balance right as well. Not just trying to, I think, meet this nation like charity voluntary sector now where it's like, yes, everything must have young people at the front of it. Gretarism. I've not heard that word, and then I realised. <laughs> I just exactly. made it up. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm referring to aggressive film there. Um, <laughs> Before we started this podcast, I spoke to my mum about this stuff, about race. So I said to her, this, there are certain things you never told me as a parent, as a mum, because she was just involved in her own life. And I said, this has been one of the problems internally in my family. And I think you can kind of draw an example further out. So, for example, this intergenerational conversation within black families, I can explicitly remember her saying things to me like, you need to work three times as hard. You need to do this, but there's no explanation. Just telling me stuff about the reality that she's encountered. And now, remember, she's encountered this reality in a certain period of time. The knowledge that she's passing down is reflective of a certain type. It doesn't reflect where I am. And it's these intergenerational conversations that are kind of, they're not fully formed. So my nan's experience of racism, she never talks about it, ever, ever. So my mum doesn't really understand. She encounters the world in her own base, in her own way. And then when she passes it down to me, she passes it down to me in piecemeal. So I don't understand. And I'm growing up in the 80s, 90s, it's completely different. Because racism is a dynamic thing that's always moving. But there is this narrative that I'm inheriting. It's, it's, it doesn't really make sense. And only in hindsight now that I'm piecing it together. And I think what we need to do is have those conversations earlier and continue and always might speak the truth to our kids. We're too busy saying, this, giving that platitudes, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. But no explaining how and why. This is what Roxy's doing. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. That's what I'm saying. It's those spaces. <laughs> but, also, but it also done, done in their families. It's nice having an organisation mm-hmm. do it. That's not the family. They, they, they need to work in tandem, I think, really. And lots of young people certainly prefer having that conversation I was with, I was in a I was in a session with some young people recently and a teacher and a teacher asked them if they liked the fact that they were given that kind of preparation conversation about what was to come or whether they thought that was actually you know not necessary or a bit negative and I think how did a young person describe it as like preparing to go for the bus and she said I don't want to just believe I'm going to get that bus I want to know that there is a potential that I might miss it no matter how hard I try to go and get it. Oh my God, that's heartbreaking. And if I miss it, I'm prepared for it because I've had that preparation Mm -hmm. beforehand. And it was something like that. When she said it, I was like, shit. (laughs) Like, yeah, you're 15 already thinking in that way and thinking about the importance of that conversation in your childhood to your life and your your processing of your life and how you move forward forward and approach things. It's so interesting, like, thinking about what you both have just said now, like, the importance of being honest and the importance of telling young people how it is. Like, we can do that in a caring way. It doesn't have to be like, look, white supremacy is going to fuck your life forever. Like, it doesn't have to be like that. Like, there can be a caring and nurturing and guided way of explaining what, how racism might affect your life structurally and interpersonally. What you guys are talking about reminds me of a group ethnographic interview that I did with families in my own PhD. And it was with two siblings 
and their dad and siblings are black and white mixed race and their dad's black and there were three of us in the room like their dad's in his like late 60s two siblings are in their sort of early 30s one of the themes of my project is how we don't talk about racism enough as families and literally it was just so poignant like they were looking at their dad and just saying why didn't you tell us why didn't you break this down for us why didn't you talk about this and he was like, well, we moved to suburbia. I thought it would be all right. And they were like, why did you think it would be all right? Was it all right for you? And he's like, no, it wasn't all right for me. Like, it, it was really something. Like, right. like, he didn't not have the conversation because they don't care about their kids. It's just how we, like what Tisa was saying, like how families sort of don't talk about things. It's just so, it's so poignant. And just, it was almost like I was seeing like the younger versions of them who would experience all the, horrific stuff I experienced at school trying to say to dad look help me like yeah. I, I need your help like I think you normalize, like I mean it comes back to that that discussion about normalizing things as well and we normalize so much if I had a kid tomorrow I don't necessarily know where I'd I'd probably miss out so much yeah. in terms of experiences yeah. of racism um because yeah so much of it you just get used to don't you and you internalize it or normalize it and and just settle it within yourself that um I guess you can kind of see where that kind of gets lost in dialogue maybe of course also wanting to protect your children from that perhaps as well in a term we we stoically manage racism we stoically manage all these things we put up with it and most of the time how we encounter it we're thinking it's everywhere, right? So I pick and choose my battles. What's what's quite interesting is if you compare it to the white experience, right? So white people, because they have no resilience to this, they get triggered by the slightest thing, like what you I can't sit at that seat. And they go crazy. And I'm like, why'd you go crazy? But I've encountered this problem all the time. So I've learned how to manage these things in a stoic way. Like I'm not gonna blow up at every racist comment or when someone doesn't sit next to me or when someone's giving me a dirty look or when a woman cra- grabs a handbag because it's happened to me a million times. I have become resilient and I choose my battles. And you well, see- I, don't want, I know we always talk I don't, about I don't, I don't, I don't want young people to be resilient. No, 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 but, I'm like, saying, but that's, yeah. that's, that's- Well, I do learn. want to be, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be resilient. But that's what yeah. we learn, and you end up passing it down, and you're thinking, "Is that's obviously not right?" But that's what that's what happens, right? You no, know I think it's really interesting about what you said, Roxy, as well. We were talking about the parents, and you said, "Of course, they're trying to protect them." What I feel like is really interesting about this is how protection gets translated as silence. So you're protecting them by not talking about racism, which I under I get it, like I do understand it, but actually, when you think about it, it's like it does the opposite, doesn't it? Like. Yeah. There's a balance, isn't there? There's protection in both ways. There's protection in in sharing with your children what the reality of society yeah. and what's going to come their way. And then there's protection in, I guess, we might think maybe it's important to be vulnerable in front of your children, but, you know, in showing your own vulnerability and sharing those experiences that, that happened to you when you were younger that, is, that still can be quite raw, I can imagine that you feel like you're protecting and not showing that side of yourself to them um there's so many different things to think about that you know it's really difficult job isn't it like i can't imagine doing it i can't imagine having to prepare children for a world in that way especially when it's so personal by not speaking about we do the work of white supremacy it remains invisible it remains invisible so therefore it it maintains what it always does it it sets itself as normal and by not speaking about it we do the same work for them and you think that's the irony right yeah that's not Right, can we talk about 
noble policing schools we can this campaign is so well crafted like aesthetically anyway but the whole messaging is just brilliant it's clear and it's just been so good to read the report like check out the episode notes listeners but just before you explain to us about no more policing schools roxy like me and t were talking yesterday about police in our own schools and we both had police in our schools like I grew up in the late 90s and through the noughties and he grew up in the 80s and 90s and like what's mad about this is like your campaign is obviously integral because they're talking about increasing police presence in Manchester schools sometimes when people read this stuff they think it's something new yeah. but actually it's something that's been going, it's been going on for a long time but rightly so it needs to always have these renewed campaigns. It's certainly important for people to know that you know when we're coming at this yeah it's not a new issue you know, safer schools partnerships kind of came about in the early noughties um, under Labour, and then they kind of the police came and then disappeared a bit with cuts. And also, they they're in schools in so many different forms that a, a regular police presence is really is already here. Um, you know, growing in Manchester and particularly here in when in London as well, it's it's there already. The, the campaign came about, I guess, kind of ideas around it started in 2019 when we started to have more kind of dialogue come through from young people we had an event kids of color and policing with kids of color and northern police monitoring project where young people started to highlight some experiences of policing in schools whether that's with a schools-based police officer or whether that's kind of just a regular police presence and, and police being called into schools um, and I was doing my master's on it at the time as well. So I was in conversations with head teachers to try and understand why this felt like a, a growing call. Remy, Joseph Salisbury as well from Northern Police Monitoring Project, at the same time also starting to do his work about race and racism in English secondary schools. And he was speaking to teachers across Greater Manchester. Thanks, and Remy. Things. Um, Love Remy. <laughs> <laughs> and love for Remy. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this dialogue started to appear through events, even just like in the community. I remember sitting in a in a cafe and hearing this um, guy talk to his mate saying, I've got to go and pick up my sister because um, she's just text saying the police have arrived at school after there was this big kind of fight outside with lots of students and the teachers pulled all the black kids into isolation and, and let all the others go and called the police in. So I'm like proper nosy when I'm out and about. So I kind of went over and was like, what have you just said? Um, and, you know, just hearing these narratives on the ground. So then we we put in a freedom of information request to um, Greater Manchester Police. And they said that 20 more schools based police officers were coming in this academic year, so September 20 to 21. And I'd finished my master's at the point where I had conversations with Andy Burnham, the mayor, who said it's, it's something that's coming and that head teachers supposedly behind it and stuff like that. So Blue Andy. Yeah, all of these narratives started to come and um, we had an event earlier this year just before lockdown um, where we kind of called people to come together and kick-started the campaign behind the scenes. And, you know, people want evidence. People always want evidence. Um, and a big part of that was us pulling together a report decriminalise the classroom as part of the campaign, which surveyed 554 people from across Greater Manchester on their opinions. And, you know, overwhelmingly, people don't want police in schools, as we thought would be the case. Um, and that is that like, the largest and only consultation of, of people in Greater Manchester about, about how they feel about police presence in schools. So with young people, teachers, adults, parents, you know, all contributed. And it's, it's damning. Um, 
so yeah it's it's been a bit of a whirlwind but it's it's so important that people are getting on board in, in challenging their presence why is there police presence in schools like i was literally gonna say that i was like why are they bringing them in there for what and that's that's the thing that i when you tell people and people maybe who aren't, I guess, in the same like bubbles we are and who maybe, you know, aren't as attached to these issues, um, the mainstream public, really, I guess, you know, they'll go, what? Why? And that's the thing as well. People just are like, why are we putting police in education? That's not what education is for. But yeah, when you start to then ask those questions and pose those questions to our leaders and, and the police, the main narrative that comes through is knife violence. Um, I was say that. So that's the strong narrative that's coming through. That, that we need police in schools because of knife violence but that doesn't fit so what we see from schools resource officers in america is that actually they're ineffective in reducing violence and we know that youth violence is such a complex issue with root causes that are not going to be solved by policing that this isn't going to have an effect there but i think what frustrates me most about the argument of youth violence is it often feels like it's put back on us as a justification when we're saying policing is racist. This is going to have a significant impact on young people of colour, but black young people in particular, um, inside schools. And then what comes back is, yes, but youth violence. And I'm like, hang on a minute. You know, they are both connected issues that we need to talk about, but also at the same time, they're completely separate. What we're saying here is we're dealing with discriminatory policing and that's what we do not want. And you're saying, well, actually, we justify that because this issue exists and, and we okay that because this issue exists. And that, I think, feels really frustrating to me as an ongoing kind of response to us really coming here from the point of we want anti-racist education. <laughs> it's just it's just not good enough. But that is like a key reason. And then I say the secondary one is... Um, that people think it will improve relationships. As we say, kind of in the campaign, young people, our children shouldn't be like this testing ground to try and improve relationships when institutional racism has existed within the police force um, for decades and decades and decades since their existence. Um, you know, we shouldn't be trialling with our children in our school to see whether they can improve that. It's not their job. Their education should be their safe space to go to school and to learn and develop. Um, and it's it's not going to improve relationships because young people, particularly black young people, are nervous about being in a police presence and they still then have to leave the school gates and be stopped and searched or experience a house raid or be arrested. So it's not going to improve it when the same institutionally racist policing exists outside the school gates and will exist inside as well. The first point about violence, like, so mm. the school I was entering at, there were lots of well, knife fights. The result of that was that the parents felt safer with the police presence. So in, in the short term, personalised view of it was, this is just a, like a maintenance of law and order to ensure my kid can get home from school. In those circumstances, people are considering what's right right now for my child. They're not thinking of those wider structural issues. And yeah. I think that's one of the hurdles that you have to overcome. Like people will interpret those things on an individualised basis. It's not until we start looking how does it affect us wider do those structural issues come into play. After school, these kids, literally, I came out of school, there were kids waiting on the other side to fight the other kids. Mm -hmm. So in that instance, right now, that meant the police needed to be there. You can see people can make an argument for that. Though. And so, Completely. And it's really important that we continue to try and be sensitive and are sensitive yeah. 
to those conversations because yeah there are people in our community who have lost loved ones to knife violence and we can't dismiss those wants and the need to feel safe and protected but at the same time a police presence in schools is not safety for many young people it won't equate to safety for many young people so it's although it might some parents might feel it it kind of might remove one danger it introduces many others and I know it's difficult because obviously like you said you know as parents I'm sure you know not always thinking about the wider structural issues but there's also this danger of of a real long-term risk to the child's future in their acceleration from from school to prison so yeah there's so many competing issues that we need to be sensitive to but you know I want and as as the surveyed in the report kind of state they want youth workers they want counsellors in their schools they want that kind of support first and foremost as a priority and overwhelmingly that's what people said they wanted in place of a police officer Um, and that's including parents teachers young people we need to be thinking about those other roles as well and how we make that safe nurturing place in education it reminds me of like you've got obviously brilliant scholars like Adam Elliott Cooper who talk about youth violence needing to be understood holistically but also in terms of it being a public health issue like by seeing it as something that is resolved by the police you're just you're using it as a a carceral criminalization full of stigmatization pathologization of of black kids like as a public health issue like what Tiso was just saying there like seeing it more structurally and looking at the things that seep into why we have kids waiting on the other side of the the playground for kids coming out it would just be so much better long term and it would help so many more people but people want quick fixes community wise I don't know what it's going to do what it's going to take for people to understand or governments and the general public to understand that we can't do quick fixes to, to things that go wrong in society the idea that your second point obviously that you made this idea of that the police being having a pastoral role this kind of reflects a kind of bygone era of the bobby and the bee the local policeman so big up pc allen who's come to my uh my little primary school yeah he's come to my primary school PC right boom so remember so this is primary school so i am between the ages of what five and eleven so you have no, I haven't encountered policing. Remember, these schools are effectively social laboratories. So you're trying out social experiments in schools. But you're not I, supposed to be. I know, yeah. I know no, but, but schools are, <laughs> in fact, that's what they are, right? So these guys, I, I guess, trying to build relationships before that they become tainted with the notion of institutional racism and all those things that exist on the outside. What makes coppers? Listen, I'm, I'm just telling you what happened well, to PC Allen. PC Allen, It's just weird that PC Allen... Is positioned as some sort of kind of like. But what, no, what I said to my mum is the repressive state. <laughs> but I asked, I, I asked my mum. I said, "How did you feel about it?" And she said, "The older people felt it made it might make you feel safer. Like the older people at that time say safer." I'm like, "Okay, so maybe it's about it's integration. Who's being policed, right? Who's being policed make you feel a certain way about this person coming to school?" So it's just weird. Like we have them on my estate, policemen trying to build bridges with the community. So they're coming with some kind of pastoral kind of And my particular flats fall under the prevent thing because there were a few radicalized people who were arrested in my block of flats, right? So my my mum was a councillor for the city of London. And it was overwhelmingly thought that this would be a good thing if the police would come into the estate and speak to young people. 
I've done the air quote things, if you want to know. Um, yeah, speak to young people, right? It's disingenuous as well. Like, there's this this idea that they're there to kind of forge this safe relationship where you can talk to me because I'm a police officer. And we know that's not what they're doing it for. There has to be an intention to policing that that feeds into punishment and crime. And when I think, you know, our real concern is surveillance and intelligence gathering in schools. And we know officers have contributed to gangs databases and, you know, prevent is going to be exacerbated. And the impact of that on Muslim students is going to be, I think, you know, even worse. Um, and that kind of forming of relationships, I think, you know, it's going to be utilised in a way that then goes to just further criminalise particular young people um so yeah it just feels really disingenuous when they're like oh yeah we want to form a relationship you know we want to get to know them it's like no you want to you want to know who they're friends with you want to know what networks they have you want to know if it feeds into your narratives around around black young people and whether it fits into your idea of of gangs networks and all these other elements of criminalization you're destroying my childhood you mean pc allen wasn't my friend he was surveilling me what do you mean like hey, are you are you good mates with him now <laughs> And just before we get on to this, big up No More Exclusions and Zara B, who's been working tirelessly on this for a couple of years now. Yeah, so you're already seeing post-COVID-19 lockdown exclusions amongst your young people. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, so in the first week, I've had two calls about young people who came back into school in September, excited to start, and they had then been told that they're being excluded for something that they did in June or a behavioural issue in June. It feels as if COVID is going to be a way in which, in a, a really challenging time for education, it might be a catalyst to try and get those that people deem difficult out of education quicker and that, that generally is like the the school to prison pipeline isn't it it's that kind of acceleration of those that actually schools feel that they're not equipped to support or deal with through the school into the criminal justice system via punitive kind of policies and procedures isolations detentions exclusions and it feels like i think covid19 we're in a time where education is going to be really difficult. There's all these new rules for young people to stick to, which they're already having come down on them hard. In the first weeks of school, I've seen some young people who um, got told off for laughing and were made to stand up against a wall for 30 minutes with their masks on. And um, they were year sevens, new to the school. And they're all having to, yeah, having to follow all these new rules and COVID rules. Oh. And it's, you know, they're already be being treated um, really badly. Um, and it does feel like maybe... COVID-19 is going to kind of accelerate some young people through more quickly but yeah I've already seen um, scenarios where young people have already been told that they're going to be facing exclusion or um, one young person was was sent home with a isolation and exclusion workbook. Oh my god I saw you upload that. Yeah. Who the fuck made that? Who sat at home and made an isolation workbook? I know just you know the fact that have that title on the front like what that does to a young person's sense of self needs to be explored and them sitting there with 
with this quite oppressive looking workbook with a young person on a chair kind of shrugged over and it says isolation exclusion workbook on it. Do you think schools right now are borrowing from the carceral system? So there's a there's kind of interplay. So so when I was used to research prison and prison reforms, one of the things was the, an isolation prison. So prisons that were basically set up for the prison to work alone through a workbook. The idea of punishment would be to be alone. By being alone, you kind of gain self-improvement. That was the kind of 19th century kind of notion of improvement and isolation. So is that kind of, do you think that's being replicated in the education system? or? Oh, I, think, I think education is exactly like prison for certain young people. That is, of course, for young people of colour and working class young people, schools in working class areas, young people always make that that attachment. You know, that's not something that we have to leave. They they throw it out there. Oh, yeah, education feels more like prison now. Um, And yeah, it's that it's that punishment of being being alone and being isolated and not having work that meets your intellect to do. It's being humiliated up against a wall for thirty minutes on your first day of school for laughing. It's being treated constantly like a suspect. Um, It's the connotations that teachers have around them as gang members. You know, calling black groups of black boys in the in the playground gangs and mobs and you know we've got kind of the first secure school on the way here in the UK essentially you know a prison prison school and Karen Graham's work is really good and I recommend that to look at about the school to prison pipeline but they're really like prisons they replicate them in so many ways I'm literally I'm kind of schooling my kids head over to the no police and schools website and read the report and look at the actions and try and understand um the issues but yeah certainly try and think about the ways in which education is not built for all young people and they uphold white supremacy and they uphold classism and they places that really need to we need to reimagine what they look like in their entirety um to ensure that we're doing right by all young people so follow lots of, you know the projects you've mentioned as well no more exclusion and other groups like that because there are so many um community groups doing good work around this to try and reimagine what education can be for young people such inspiring work honestly Listeners, check out the episode notes after this episode. Read the report. Look at Kids of Colour. They're doing absolutely brilliant stuff. Roxy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Patrons, you've got another episode. So head over to Patreon now. You get your your bonus episode. And rest of the listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you so much. Bye. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.